Hello, and welcome to Shattered Lives, an informed, conversational, cutting-edge radio show in touch with today's issues that impact the lives of crime victims, addressing the aftermath of crime, forging a path for hope, building awareness, and empowering listeners for the future. This is Donna Argor, a.k.a. Lady Justice, your host with my co-host, Delilah Jones, president of ImaginePublicity.com, welcoming you to today's show and to our library of weekly archive shows. It is our goal to make a difference. And um, <clears throat> yes, indeed, it is our goal to make a difference. And welcome, everyone, to this Saturday in August. And we're very, very glad to um, have you with us, uh, regardless of where you're listening, when you're listening, whether it's live or on the archives. We um, are very uh, pleased to have a, a brand-new guest uh, with a new topic that kind of uh, delves into a number of different aspects dealing with crime, the aftermath of crime, and grief. Um, Laura, Laura Fu is our guest from the Chapel Hill, Hill area, and uh, we'll, we'll be introducing her in just a minute. Um, and our topic uh, with regards to Max Kolb, who was her very dear friend, her boyfriend. But before we get into that, I want to say good morning to the captain of the ship over at ImaginePublicity.com, Delilah. Hi, how are you? Good morning. It's great to be here on another beautiful Saturday morning, um, afternoon, whenever, whenever anyone is listening. It's it's great. Um, you know, this is this is one of the shows that um, I think will be quite informative for the general public and for the listeners as well. Um, how someone deals in the aftermath of a of a huge tragedy and taking place in in. 20, 2001, which you know was was a rough year for everyone. However, this young lady has um, really come through on the other side. So, um, I think listeners will need to pay attention to this story and learn how how this can happen and how you can overcome. Uh, yes, definitely. And and what struck me. Also, is that um, not only was this one of the most horrendous crimes that I've ever read about in terms of being so vicious and you know so totally um, unwarranted, and uh, but also the fact that there is, is so much positivity in the aftermath in terms of what they did for Max and building a legacy, and maybe they're going to be changing that in the future because it's kind of come to a natural rest. And also the fact that Laura was kind enough to come on and to admit that, you know, she is still dealing with her grief long term, so we will get into that. So instead of talking about her, let's talk with her. Good morning, Laura. Welcome to the Shattered Lives uh, radio program and to our, and to our family of, of shows. We're, we're so pleased to have you. Good morning, Donna, and good morning, Delilah. Thank you so much for having me today. Well, it, it is our pleasure, and we're here to learn from you. And as we said um, off air, um, what we're going to talk about, you know, it all comes from the heart, and I think that's where our listeners uh, derive so much value because they can read the cold, hard facts in a in a newspaper article. And, and granted, the articles that I've read about with Max 
Um, they were grisly. Some of the facts were untrue. And, um, you know, they sell papers to sensationalize. So we want to make a realistic portrayal and tell some of the backstory and the human story about Max and what, what you were able to, to, to do um, on the positive side after such a horrendous loss. So with respect to beginning, I, I just want to maybe start with the fact that you were a college student at Hofstra with, with um, Max. What, what was life like about 16 years ago at Hofstra as a student? Can you kind of paint a picture of what the atmosphere was and, and the two of you and the other students that you kind of hung out with? Um, yes. It was 2001. It was the spring of 2000. My junior year, Max was a sophomore, and um, we were part of a, a small group of friends, and I, I am very close with all those people now. We've been to many events and weddings and uh, baby showers and whatnot since, since Max's murder, but we were a small group of close friends, and um, you know, we were college kids. I had just turned 21, he had just turned 20, and the last thing on my mind was, you know, losing someone like that. I was more thinking a, a breakup, maybe, but uh, what, mm-hmm. what was about to happen that semester had, had never crossed my mind. I was, I was young. It was my first relationship, my first time being open with someone, and I was nervous for all those regular types of reasons, and, and then this happened. So we, we were not prepared for it at all. Well, who who can be for for um, for homicide, you know? But but in the sense of um, uh, the fact that you that campus life, you felt comfortable, you felt safe. It was an environment where you could oh. kind of be free, and you were liberated from the influence of family. You were off starting your career, that kind of thing. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I felt very safe. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, 2001 was a, a, a different for, for everyone, but no, the, the campus was very safe. Even before this, I knew members in campus activities, and I lived on, both of us lived on campus. The murder did not occur on campus. Um, it, it occurred in a nearby town, but our concern, I mean, we were we were college kids on a college campus, and we just didn't think of this at all ever ever afterwards and i can i can relate to that i remember my college days and my graduate school days and you know i didn't think about those kind of things either but before we get into that aspect can you give us sort of a thumbnail sketch about how you met max and, and describe you know <laughs> like who he was as a as a person and what kind of attracted you to him Okay. Well, I we met in in a class in the School of Communication at Hofstra, where ultimately mm-hmm. this place and be broadcast. Um, it, I, it turns out it was his first class of college ever. I remember it was SCO School of Communications. It was SCO four, I think, an introductory class. And I even wrote in my journal, and I can look back in my journal, talking about, oh, there's this kid in my class. He's kind of cute. I wonder <laughs> if I'll ever ask him out. Um, but it wasn't until, so that would have been the fall of, or maybe the spring of 99. I'm not quite, about a year later, he and I ended up being on the same bus towards, towards the Long Island Railroad to get on a, 
a train into the city. I, of all things, I had tickets to go see David Letterman. And he was oh, on really? the train trying to, trying to see David Letterman. And he was by himself. I was with a bunch of my friends. And so we spent the evening together, and I was in the audience watching the show. And he's like, okay, I'll meet you guys afterwards. He ended up being on air. He knew the show so well. He said, I bet they're going to go to this pizza joint across the street. And so I was sitting in the studio, and they say, we're going to go live across the street. And there's Max sitting in a pizzeria with doing one of the, the Letterman skits in the background. Um, and that was really? what I consider the – yeah, and I, I have I have a copy of that. It's it's hilarious. He's just standing there in in the background. So that but that was February of two thousand one, and um mm-hmm. his murder was in late April. Um, so, so I finally did get I have to know that guy, right? <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, that's that's kind of how it all started. He was how a sweet I, kid now, in the class. Was he a a theater arts major? What was and what was his circle he, like in terms of? Yeah, he was a film student. I was a television student, so we were. That's how we okay. both met in the school of communications. Um, so he he was an aspiring filmmaker. I was making television, you know, producing and, and shooting and editing. Oh wow! With classes, um, but we happened to be in the same building. That's it. And because of those those uh, the similar majors, then you might have you know had more classes together. Is that right, or or you didn't um, have that opportunity? It's possible. Um, yeah. No, I, I haven't actually thought about that, but it's it's possible we could have. There were a lot of um, core classes that yeah. all students would have to take. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, with regard to um, so you didn't you didn't have as much as much opportunity to, you know, to kind of have this blossom as much as you may have wanted. Uh, what were the um, circumstances of, uh, well, he he wasn't killed on campus. He was in an in wow. off-campus department. So how did that, during his sophomore year, did he decide to live off of campus? No, no, he, he, it wasn't off, um, it, it happened in um, a hotel, actually, and I, I don't even know all the details of it, as I was not family, so I, mm-hmm. I've never received all the details other than what I've heard in the news, really, right. um, but he, um, from, from what I understand, there was another student um, who used to live on his floor the previous year, and I had never heard of him until after the murder, but he had asked Max if he could talk. Max was a great listener. Um, mm-hmm. I would call him or knock on his door at all hours just saying, hey, let's hang out. Um, so apparently what happened is he got a phone call one night from someone he somewhat knew who said, hey, I need, I'm, I'm having a bad day. I need to talk. And they, he brought Max off campus to a, a hotel in Hicksville, Long Island. Somehow along the way, he was slipped a um, what I've just described as a date rape drug. And he was unconscious and in that time he was I don't know the details nor do I want to know but he was assaulted and stabbed to death in the hotel room. Brutally brutally killed right I just I I can't imagine and and I I know that um in reading you know some of the accounts I mean there was a rumor that there was a you know a past made in terms of uh you know potential uh 
you know, the perpetrator might have been gay. and But that ultimately, from some of the articles I, I read, it, through evidence, that was totally um, unfounded. Um, and that later on it proved that, that this was purely a thrill, thrill kill, as what they described it, correct? I mean, this guy came yeah. from an affluent family, and he wanted to do mm-hmm. it for the hell of it. Yeah, and I, I have heard both sides, and there's there's part of me that always really, you know, I do want to know what, what transpired in that room that night. But for the first several years, the story that I had that was in the news, where you've probably read it, was that Max declined um, a sexual offer from this this man, and in some fit of rage, he attacked and stabbed him to death. And for years, I, I mean, I carried that. On, I mean, all I could think of is the last thought he had was me. I don't know what, but thinking, no, I don't, I don't I'm not, I don't want to. I'm, there's this woman in my life. That's what I, I always thought. Yeah. Um, but years later, I did hear that there was some, some drug found in his system, which means he would have been unconscious. Um, right. So I, I really don't, I, I don't know. I haven't been able to go that extra step to, to find out. Well, those kind of statements sell newspapers, and that's what, when I read that, I, I always take that with a huge grain of salt, you know, because anything they can use, um, they they will, whether it's true or not. And with regard to, you know, the, uh, he, he seems, it, it sounds like he was the kind of person who would kind of drop anything to help somebody, right? And, you know, here's this person he essentially barely knew, but oh, I want to talk about about this personal issue, and and um, so he would go to somebody and and try to assist them, right? That's the max that I knew. I mean, mm-hmm. he was there for me in so many ways. You know, just just to talk, just to be there. He was always present. He would always make himself available and accessible. Um, and I mean, things were fine. We had plans. Um, we had, he had just picked out his suit. He had just picked out a tie to match my dress for our semi-formal that um, oh. happened three weeks later. So the, mm-hmm. the night last night I saw him, the night before he died, he was showing me the tie. I had just I had just earned a, an, an internship for the summer, so we were making plans for him to come down from Boston, for me to go up to Boston. So for for this to have been anything other than him just being a good friend and responding to someone in need. I mean, that's, right. that's, I think how it unfortunately happened. That's, that's how it unfolded. And, you know, I, it's just, it's just unconscionable, but the other part of the, um, of the details that are just so uh, incredibly um, despicable would be that the, the fact that, this person supposedly, and I don't want to spend lots of time on perpetrator, but the fact that they said this person was very methodical and he actually, like, um, buried him three different places before before they put the yes. time together. Can you, can yes. you go through so, that a little bit? Yeah, so from, from what I understand, of, of course, mostly from the news, a little bit from the DA, is that um, – the perpetrator, um, he, he had a, a kiddie pool and plastic tarp in his the back of his vehicle. And so he, I mean, there, there had to have been some preparation in his mind, but that um, Max was dismembered in the, in the hotel, kept in this 
person the back of his car for I'm not sure how long. And then it was long enough that at least one, one friend of mine who happened to know the killer through not as a friend, he just happened to know him through passing had been in his car. And he, after the fact told me he remembered a smell in the car. Um, and that's kind of a side note to that fact, but I know that Max had been kept in the back of his vehicle and then moved to a storage unit, a storage center somewhere on Long Island before being buried in the perpetrator's backyard on, on Long Island, I think in Long Beach. Mm-hmm. Like near mm-hmm. a barbecue or something. I mean, just yeah. in terms of the planning of, of that and, and doing all that and the fact that nothing was, I understand from the hotel room, like nobody, there wasn't that much blood, or nobody thought to call the police. They just thought, oh well, we'll we'll just clean this room as usual. I mean, I don't yeah, know. Circumstances had been different. What do you think about that, Laura? Yeah, Why I mean, caught a lot earlier. I I don't know. I mean, I obviously I haven't been to the crime scene. I don't know what it looked like, but from what the news said, there wasn't enough to to really cause any stir of. You know, mm-hmm. something happened. And I know that they had video of Max leaving. I had to identify the security video to say, yes, that's him. You know, you see him swipe the card to get in, and then he exits his dorm room later. So they had some time frame of his motion on campus. But once he was off campus, there was no way to know where he was. Yeah. Um, it was a total of about three weeks. It was during finals of my junior year before they, they found him. And and was it not true that was it like the next day that his parents tried to come in to his dorm room or, or something and then they had to trace his his steps via his um, um his car for the dining hall? Yeah, well, so he he died on a I, I want to say it's a, it was a Tuesday night and that weekend his parents I believe had already planned to come down for the weekend. Um, I had reported just campus safety that something was wrong when Max didn't show up for class Wednesday and didn't return my calls, but it, it apparently wasn't enough to, to make anyone worried. It was just a college kid who didn't show up to class. But when his parents came that weekend and mm-hmm. said something, it wasn't until that Saturday that public safety and um, uh, what Nassau County Police started to get involved. So campus security didn't do anything until, you know, several no. days later on that weekend, maybe? I, I, I don't want to say they didn't do anything, but or I do recall do it was something to the, to the extent of it's been 24 hours and he hasn't been to class. That's not enough to be a missing I, I don't yeah. Public safety was amazing for me. I used to go there. It was, it, was, it was a safe haven for me. They were amazing. But in the first several days, we, he was just missing. Right. We never thought it would come to this. Part of me actually he, thought he was on one of those reality shows he loved so much, and he was going to, like, pop out on candid camera or something. I, <laughs> this was, you, you thought he was off doing his thing in terms of uh, – Part of me thought he was going to pop out at the semi-formal that he, he didn't go to and, and surprise me. Um, yeah, because he was he was kind of a flashy guy in that way, huh? And doing these he kind was, of crazy things. He was a thoughtful person, very creative and very entertainment driven. He loved television and movies. So I I didn't think his 
being missing t- would turn into his murder. Yeah. I, and I just didn't think that. No one is ever prepared for that. Was was it the kind of um, atmosphere where kind of all the students in that same major may have hung out together in groups? It wasn't like you would, or or if you happened to be paired with somebody, you know, in a relationship. But it, 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 he wasn't like a loner. He had a lot of friends. It sounds like. No, he. I a lot of people knew him. I don't. I don't believe he had a lot of close friends. Mm-hmm. I mean, in the time that I knew him, I didn't get to meet many people, but any time we did something, he never had trouble striking up conversations or yeah. hanging out or being comfortable with a new group of people. Mm-hmm. He, he wasn't, you know, a flashy, crazy, outgoing person, but he, he seemed What's to be it? just everyone's friend instantly when they met him. Wow. It sounds like it's yeah. pretty charismatic. Now, how did how did it play out in terms of the um, investigation? Um, and how, did, did you have a sense that ultimately, um, you know, they they probably did everything they could? Or I know, you know, you you have a lot of details or have had to. Um, rely on the newspaper accounts, but from what you've heard and have you had contact with his family, um, kind of fill in the blanks there for us in terms of the evolving investigation. Well, it was quite a long time ago. I mean, I I remember that summer um, I came back to campus because I, I had an internship in Manhattan so when I was on campus after, you know, the, the guy was in, you know, he was in jail, but they, they, in, you know, they interviewed me. They, I, I remember that the detectives took my voicemails, and I had left voicemails for Max, so they were asking about the voicemails I had left for him. Yeah, and they, they took my journal, and they read through that. Um, and then I had to give some sort of a, a statement to a bunch of detectives that summer, and I have a copy of it, but it's, it's, it's just describing all the details of our relationship, and it was very uncomfortable. I'm okay. sure it was. They asked about what <laughs> level of intimacy we were. And yeah. <laughs> for the first time to have to tell that to a, a detective, a very private thing. Um, but it was, sure. I, I don't know exactly what they needed it for. Um, and then ultimately it was after graduation. I graduated in May of 2002, but I was um, subpoenaed by Nassau County DA. It was Fred Klein. Um, to be a character witness. And I was, I believe, the second character witness after his mother. And I was flown out there, I'm thinking this would have been early 2003, and I was prepared for, they were prepping me for um, taking the stand as a character witness. Um, How how can you become a character witness if you're sort of, you know, the girlfriend? Or is that, did they describe that? Well, they, they, I had been told it was something about being a character witness, that there were no witnesses to the murder, but they needed to have someone to describe who the, the victim was. And I was somehow selected to be that person. But it, uh-huh. it never happened, ultimately. There, and I, I just don't know all the details. I found out when, I think it was someone from the New York Times called my cell phone and said, what do you, how do you feel about the plea bargain? Um, <gasps> That's and, how you learned? Yes. Um, so, you know, I called the DA and they said, yeah, there was a, there was a plea bar, there's not going to be a trial. And he ended up getting 30 to life. Um, so, and that was, that was it. 
I, I went out there for a sentencing. The only time I've ever seen his killer um, physically there, you know, he was in the room. But that was it. I didn't get up. I didn't talk. I didn't do anything else. And that was maybe 2004. Did you do a victim impact statement? I was not asked to. I was. I don't know if that means I wasn't given the opportunity or if I just didn't ask, but no, I did not. It, it sounds like maybe they did not inform you of your rights, which is so so disheartening, um, you know, that you didn't have that opportunity. And from what I understand, it, uh, the, this perpetrator, this was supposedly his first crime and because the, maybe the family was um, – affluent they they somehow worked a, a a deal so that ultimately he would have gotten life in prison had they not get, gotten this plea deal is that right Laura to your understanding I, I don't even know I I don't know I'd have to call the DA and, and look through all their papers part of me maybe it's because I'm trying to forget it maybe it's because I never knew to begin with but I just don't know any of those details mm-hmm. um well, how do you, maybe this is a good juncture to ask about this. You don't know certain details, and it's kind of served as a maybe a personal protection. But yet you perhaps, in order to get resolution emotionally, and I don't mean closure, but resolution to this particular chapter, what do you feel you would you would need to know to be able to kind of put, put a resolution on this chapter, what would make you feel a little more comfortable? Would it be ultimately in the future maybe um, sitting down with the DA and and, and ha- having a little more information or being able to, to touch base with his, his, um, his family, Max's family? What would make you feel a little better about this? Because I'm, I know it's very unsettling for you, and there's so many unanswered questions. Um, Have you thought about it from that angle? Yeah, well, I, I am very close with his family, his father especially. I see him. I write to him a lot. We, you know, I think the last time I had dinner with him was maybe a year or two ago. Um, so I'm, I'm close with, his fam- with Max's family, but I have thoughts about, and I've even gone as far as calling the Nassau County DA's office to seek permission to look at the files. Mm-hmm. And that the last time I did that was maybe four or five years ago. And the response, I was on the phone with them. They said, yeah, your name is in the case files. So you have the right to come look through this. Would you like to schedule an appointment? And I hung up the phone. That's as far as I've gotten. Um, and that I was think five years resol- ago. That was at least five years ago. Um, I, I think there would be resolution just to know exactly what happened, like what transpired. And I don't even know if we'd know if it's true because it was just Max and his killer. So how do we know what really happened? Um, but like, why did he go out there? What did they talk about? Or like, I, I don't know what happened. At all, right, and um, and that's kind of what's really bothering you. I mean, they might be able to share some more details that you did not know, or, or they. This this is our best hypothesis, kind of a thing. But so this is at least five years later. Um, so what would be your your personal goal in the future if you want to like address this? Would you have a very trusted friend or somebody that would 
would go go with you to be able to do this or your mom or somebody yeah, like that? I, I haven't thought it out that much. I have a, a close relative and an, an aunt of mine who's, well, she happens to be a lawyer and she's, she's been, she's like a second mother. Um, but if, mm-hmm. if I ever needed to do this, yeah. I would, she would, she would fly out there in a, in a heartbeat up to New York to, to sit with me. But I, I think I would like to have a friend of mine um, and every friend that comes to mind is someone who knew Max too. So it's, you know, a friend of mine, but someone who went through that semester with, sure. with the rest of us. I, I yeah. would like to be there, but I haven't gone as far as asking someone if they would do it. Because well, I if I were your friend, I would do it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but I just thought seems- about, you know, I, I don't know how it would work. Would it be a, a box of photos? Would I accidentally see a photo that I really don't want to see? Or is it, I, I don't even know how it would work. Right. Well, I guess you'd have to have other, other conversations with the, with the detectives or um, in terms of what, what they have to offer, maybe your aunt could say. Uh, D- D- Delilah, in working with all the different people that you have, have you ever encountered um, this kind of scenario where somebody really wants to go and sit down with the people that were involved in the case and weren't sure about this? Do you have any comments to lend? Oh, absolutely. But, you know, I think the thing to remember, and especially in a case like this where he may have been um, unconscious, and so therefore there's going to be a lot of questions that no one is going to ever be able to answer for anybody. Um, you know, the only person who knows is the killer. And, you know, and it's very unfortunate and it's very unsettling and it keeps things unsettled in your own heart because you know mm-hmm. you're never going to know those things that you want to know the worst. And, I'm, yes, I've seen this happen um, quite a few times. And, uh, you know, there just are no answers. Now, how you, how you move on from that, I, I really couldn't tell you. I think everyone deals with it in their in their own certain way um and there's some you know it, it's in listening to the details and reading about this case it's it brings to mind that there are some things especially homicides that so you, you kind of think well if so-and-so had done such and such perhaps that would have been a a preventable crime um, but this I, I don't think there was any way to prevent it it wasn't even a fact Yes, maybe he was at the wrong place at the wrong time or with the wrong person at the wrong time who, you know, had had whatever motives he had to do this um, to Max. But I, I just don't feel like there was any way for him for this to be a preventable thing. And again, that keeps everything unsettled psychologically for all of the surviving victims. Yeah, I think you well, make very good points. Yeah, and it's interesting that you, you say you say that, Delilah, because when you say, you know, I don't think there's anything that could have prevented it, one thing that even now, what, 16 and a half years later that keeps me up at night is that um, that night that he went out, I had promised him I'd call him. So the, the last night I saw him, it was a Monday, we had been out late the night before, like till five in the morning. I was really tired. So I stopped by his room. He showed me the tie he was going to wear. We had talked about plans for the summer and all these other things. And that's the first time that I said, so what's, what's going on here? 
like, I like you. I, I felt like I was 12 years old. I said, you know, I like you. What's going on here? And that's mm-hmm. when he, in a very, I can see it right now, he, in a very cute, shy way, he's like, well, I like you too. And I was like, is this, like, are we dating? He's like, I guess so. Um, I said, look, I'm, this is great. I, you know, I, I'm tired. I got to work at eight in the morning. I'll call you tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And the next night I didn't call because I remember telling everyone saying, Oh my God, this, this is like my first relationship. I can't believe it. I, I, I'm going to make it. You were scared a little bit, huh? You were excited. Yeah, scared? I was nervous. I was excited. I was nervous, but I said, I don't want to look like that kind of person who's just always, always calling and Hey, what do you want to do? Let's like, so I, you know, I told him I'd call, but I remember so clearly doing my laundry that night and specifically not calling him. Because and my plan was to call the next. anxious about it. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And or then when I did call for him, him to do the first move kind of thing, Laura. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. But then when I did call him on Wednesday, you know, I left a voicemail and it, I left another and then I left another and. And I thought, well, I remember thinking, oh, my God, I, for the first time ever, told someone that I liked him, and he ran away. Oh, I can imagine. That must be an awful feeling. But you were so wrong about that. He would have run to you had he I, had I'd the like opportunity, to, yeah. you know. Did he have, um, I mean, did he carry cell phone? I mean, during, in 2001, I don't even remember. This what was a bit before... Was. I don't think I had my cell phone. I'm trying to think of when I, I think I didn't get my cell phone until that summer. He mm-hmm. had, he had an extension. I ha- I still have it handwritten in my, my note. Oh, two, six, six. I remember his extension. Um, but no, we, I mean, this was before social media and cell phones and texts. Oh my God. So he wouldn't have even been able to, but you know, in the throes of that, but he was unconscious. Had he been conscious, maybe he would have been, able to fight back or something. But what what strikes me about this, too, and being a homicide survivor, and um, I'm thinking about it today because it is my dad's, it would have been his 84th birthday today, so it kind of strikes my heart. And thank you, Laura, for, for t- talking about this topic because I feel like I'm doing something in memory for my dad, too. But anyway, <laughs> I'm sorry I digress. Um, in terms of thinking, if only, if only I had made that call, and also the other thing is you didn't have a chance, and this is what I think about with my dad, you didn't have a chance to say goodbye, you know? Yeah. Uh, so those those two things as well. And, you know, so get that out of your head that, oh, you know, he felt like you were chasing him. It wasn't that at all. And if only you had known, you would have, like, run run a marathon to go down to that apartment or whatever it was. So, um, you know, it, it's just horrible um, to have to contemplate. And I agree with Delilah that there's going to be a lot of questions that you'll never know. But I personally still think that uh, you should push yourself to – um, go to that next step with your uh, the attorney and contact them, and mm-hmm. at least you might get some of your questions answered. It, it might help you with your long-term grieving because, Laura, you're a great person, and you deserve to be happy. And it, and, and I know there's uh, there's someone else out there that you deserve to be happy with when you are ready to. So, you know, do that. Do that when you're ready. 
Um, so, <laughs> you know, that's that's what I think because we can't we can't be in our grief for the rest of our life. We we fortunately our heart can love more than one person. Um, and I just think certain things are not giving you the opportunity to to embrace that opportunity. And um, you will always have those those questions in the back of your mind, but there might be some questions that can be answered. So, anyway, that's yeah. my speech about that. <laughs> what I would like to get to, and we have about 23 minutes or so just to let you know, time check for the mm-hmm. um, TV major. <laughs> Um, I, 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 I want to uh, get into what was the outgrowth of this in terms of what evolved, the really, really cool thing that evolved out of this, knowing that, knowing that um, you know, he was in film. There was a, somebody came up with this idea about doing a telethon and scholarships and a wonderful thing that went on for 16 years. Let's talk about that aspect. Yeah. So, so um, as as a senior television student, it's almost like your thesis, your final project, is you you pitch an idea for a show. I mean, whether it's a a, a news show or a court TV show, whatever it is. So we're talking what three four months after after he died, and I'm working on preparing for my senior year, and I and his Max's parents had already established some type of scholarship in his name. It was just a general film scholarship. And I, I don't remember all the details of how it happened. My my advisor tells the story better. But I guess I came up with this pitch, and I said, okay, we're going to do a live telethon in the studio here, and we're going to have all these live performers and people answering the phones, and we're going to collect money for the scholarship, and all that money goes to other film students in Max's name. What and a great idea. In reality, it was kind of a selfish way of me. It was me grieving. I wanted everyone to know that Max was an amazing person. He was a great filmmaker, and I, I loved him very much, and I wanted his name to be everywhere. And, that, and it was my project. I had to do it for school. So I was somewhat self, you know, folk, very focused on that. And then ultimately, in turn, it turned into an annual it's been sometimes described as a capstone production for Hofstra School of Calm, and it lasted 16 years. The first show was 2002, almost a year to the day after he died, and the last show was this past April of 2017. Wow, that it's just that's just incredible. How does that kind of a telethon? I mean, we all know of the the telethon for different types of. Um, disabilities like the Jerry Lewis telethon and all of those. How, how do you um, coordinate something like that? And how did you do oh, that? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I was still in college. I grab, honestly don't know. Grab entertainers off the street. I mean, in terms of, um, I, we did, we say, well, that first, the first year, a lot of the performers were, I, I performed on tape. I'm a violinist, so I played my violin. A uh-huh. lot of the other performers the first year were people who knew him or classmates of mine who knew me. And they volunteered and said, hey, I play the guitar. I'll, I'll, I'll contribute to this. And all the people who are answering the phone, and I have photos and, and video of it, they're all of our friends. It's, I have photos with me, Max, and these people, and those people were answering the phones. They were donating money. They were performing, and 
so it, it didn't seem too hard that first year. It was just all of us coming together to grieve on live TV for a good cause. Um, and somehow along the way, um, my advisor, Dr. Gershon, said, let's, let's do it again in 2003. Let's do it again. And it just happened every year, and it got bigger and bigger. They would have three producers. They'd have assistant producers. They'd have, their their um, crew list for the last show is maybe four times the size of what I had. Really? I mean, it's just incredible what it became. And they had their own website. They had their own um, social media channels. It was just incredible how it turned into this actual production. But that first year, it seemed easy because we were just doing something out of our own heart, out of our own feelings. We were just grieving. What What was your financial goal in the you know in terms of the scholarships? And you thought, oh, well, if we make this money, that would be fine. And then, you know, I don't know what my initial goal was. I'm trying to think of a number. Of, it was probably something like $5,000. I mean, when you're 21 years old, $5,000 seems like so much money. It does. <laughs> if memory serves me right, I think the first year our total was $7,000 raised during the show and in collecting money in the days after. Mm-hmm. And to date, the last number I heard was just over $80,000 raised by the telethon itself since 2002. Oh, so cumulatively. Now, you had, I, I put up last night the 16th um, show from YouTube, and I, I watched the majority of it. I thought it was really good. Um, with regard to it, now, cumulatively, it's been like eighty to $100,000 now. Is this, is the scholarship itself still going on, but you're just not doing the telephone anymore? Yeah, so the scholarship itself still exists. And the scholarship, it's the, the Max Benjamin Kolb, Kolb Endowed Scholarship at Hofstra University School of Communication. I think the, 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 the payouts for these scholarships are somewhere in, I want to say, the $3,000 range. And it covers a senior film student's film cost. So what Max would have been doing in the coming years. To be a film student and to pay, to pay your actors to get the film process for all the equipment, getting the sets, the location, it's expensive. So this has been a great thing for film students. Um, but with $80,000 raised, and then it's, it's in an endowment, so it's been building, it's been accruing since the beginning of 2002, I think it's over $100,000. Wow. That's so it benefits, now, uh, can, you know, X number of people apply per year, and then they, they consider you know, like a handful of people or because they don't yeah, want to drain, drain the funds, so to speak. Yeah, I'm not sure how many applicants they get, but I've seen normally between like three and five or, you know, five or six people a year getting to, you know, being a recipient. It probably varies each year. Um, uh-huh. And another great outcome of, of this is not only is it in the School of Communication, it's television students behind the cameras in the control room. You have mostly students performing, and all the money goes to the film students. And even the radio station is airing it. So it's, it was just this culmination of the entire School of Calm coming together. Wow, that's such an endeavor. Now, did I, I'm just thinking out of the box, I mean, this would be a great concept even just to raise money for 
crime victims, you know, someone, we had talented people and we could do a telethon like that. I mean, I, I, I think, it, I think it's wonderful. And, and so mm-hmm. each year you have a permanent record, um, both at Hostra and on YouTube of, now was this like a 24 seven kind of thing or a certain number of hours? No, it um, was, during it the was, weekend or um, what? it was always on a Sunday night and originally, <laughs> Again, I think my advisor tells the story better, but that, that first year we picked a Sunday at it was 9 or 9.30, and it had to do with some television show season finale that was happening. And we're like, well, we need to get as many people watching, and students are going to be busy until this time. So we said, this is the best time, Sunday at 10 or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it was either 60 or 90 minutes every year, although the first year we went overtime. And at least in the television world, you don't just keep going. But that year, we went off script, and we went another 30 minutes because the phones were ringing, and we, we would grab some of the musicians and said, hey, do you know, no, know another song? And we would just pull them out there. And that first year was was off script at the end. Wow. That, that's yeah. incredible. Mm-hmm. What, what are some of – if people have not had a chance to, to view what I put up – what are some of the diversity of acts that you can think of and maybe what are a couple of the most unique things? It's not only musicians, but what I, I think I saw a comedian on there. I mean, did they have a wide diversity yeah. of, of acts? Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, this year they had a comedian and they had um, they had someone that did some rapping and um, they had acoustic singers and then some live rock bands they had dancers this year some pre-taped things Uh, my year we had well I did violin we had a lot of guitarists we had a piano um, a grand piano in the studio so we had some pianists come in at least the first year we had a tap dancer some poetry readings Um, they've even aired films so we we did air parts of Max's unedited class film and then they would air films from the student recipients of the scholarship too. So it was it was a live show, but with some pre-edited um, videos in during it. Yeah! Wow! Wow! That's that's tremendous. What up? Tell us a little bit about about this film that he did produce. Was did it ever come <laughs> to uh, fruition that it was you know um, available for the masses? And wh- wh- what was it about? No, um, I don't think anyone ever edited it. I still have the script. I was, I was his script girl. Um, he he wanted me to be the lead female role. So it was for his sophomore class. It was um, a, a silent black and white short film called Blinding Heather. It was a story about this guy who pretends to be blind so that this girl that he likes will lead him around and he can be close to her without her realizing she that he was looking directly at her. Um, and then in the end, she finds out that he was lying. And But then in the end, it was everyone was happy. But we, we filmed we filmed most of it. And I, I declined his offer to play to play Heather because I I didn't she had to kiss this guy. And I said, I'm not going to kiss some guy in front of the guy I like and his film. <laughs> So mm. I, I played a script girl. I was I was there just helping him out with um when he was filming it, but he he didn't edit it. I do have the raw footage 
mm-hmm. from it. it. It has been developed, but I just right. have the script and raw footage. Well, and I hate to say this, but be, being a disability advocate and working with people who are blind and visually impaired, I wonder how, how that would have gone over, but I can see from the other side of it that it was sort of a creative way to um, grab someone's attention. But, um, you know, you have... I guess when you do these film projects, how do people come up with, you know, when when you're in that kind of a major, is it just kind of whatever pops out of their head? <laughs> yeah, I don't, I mean, I'm not sure how the, you know, where the spark for that creative creativity would originate, but and I wasn't a film student, so we didn't have long form projects like that to put together. I, I don't really know where it all came from. And I haven't looked at the script in years, if not, you know, 10 plus, it's been a long time. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I don't know how it came to be. Do, do you feel that he would have been very, very pleased about the telethons and, and you know, the aftermath of what came through? I mean, what, what would he have wanted you to do in terms of um, his legacy? And, and maybe I know we talked a little bit off air about, what what could be for the future? Do you have any ideas? Yeah, you know, I, I do think about how Max would have reacted, like what he would say to everything that we've done. And he was such a a, a humble, humbling person. I think he would be embarrassed somewhat that his name mm-hmm. is like, you, you go to, um, it's the old Dempster Hall. It's it's renamed. Uh, the, it's the Lawrence Herbert School of Communication. But if you go into that building, everyone knows Max's name. They may not have known him and known all the mm-hmm. details of who he was, but everybody knows his name. And in some way, I think he'd be like, oh. he'd be like, Foo, what? Because he always just called me by my last name, like, Foo. What? <sighs> what are you doing here? He, why, very why are they doing this? It's somewhat, embarrassing, huh? Yeah, he'd be like, oh, my gosh, my name is everywhere. But I think he'd be very grateful. And he was just such a helpful person that to know that these other students are able to be successful doing what he loved to do, making films, because of it, I think he would be honored. I'd, I I know he would be honored. Um, yeah. And, and sure. yeah, the, the telethon, we had the last one in April of this year, in 2017, um, How did we didn't think it'd go about? on this long. How did, did, did why did it end? Somebody have, um, one of your professors, um, pass away or something. The one that was kind of spearheading it. No, he re- he retired. And so oh, okay. because he had been there for the first one and for every subsequent, subsequent one, it was, it was, they were having difficulty. I think like a huge project and it just seemed better. And I agreed that, I would rather sunset the production under our own terms than have it die out because it was handed off to other people over the years. That didn't and it was successful. So it's, I'm not upset that it ends ended. Although there is this empty feeling I'm thinking next April will be the first year since 2001 that I haven't helped with a telethon. What, like, what do I do? <laughs> Well, um, you have a few months to think about your next project. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we've if talked about done. trying to do something. But we not, yeah. there's no plans for anything else, just a lot of friends and other people connected to 
16 years of the telethon who want to continue supporting the scholarship. So I'm hoping something else comes up. Well, that's the beauty of it, too. And another side of homicide is that you, you, you're immersed in this life you never thought you were, but there were so many friends that you meet as a result of this horrific event, and they become family or, or you have a commonality there and you do something positive, and that's, you know, that's what you have this 16 years. But can you tell us a little bit um, about what you are doing now personally, professionally? Um, because I'm not sure that you are still in that same field. Aren't you doing s- some other things as well? Um, I've, I've kind of jumped around here and there and since, since graduation, but, um, after college, I, you know, I went back home to Michigan and I worked in, in television news production, directing and editing. And, um, and ultimately I ended up going back to school and I earned a master's in library science and I've kind of combined the two and I work with digital asset management and media management. So I catalog I don't put books on shelves. I put files in the right server space. Um, and, and currently, as you mentioned in my introduction, I live in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. This is where I lived as a, as a child. So I came back here a year ago, and I actually work at the School of Media and Journalism at UNC right now. Um, wow. Doing some some temporary work, but it's been amazing, and it's been striking up a lot of memories of my time at the School of Com at Hofstra, just seeing these students, these ambitious, creative, hardworking students creating their projects in television and radio and photography. And um, it's it's like it's all coming full circle, you know, being yeah. back in that environment. In that kind of strange way, I guess, I guess it is. Um, if... Looking back, and I know you don't have the full picture, with regard to the to the crime and the aftermath, is there is there something that stands out for you that, of like a burning question that you would want answered, or and obviously you choose not to have any uh, communication uh, with regard to who the perpetrator was, but if you could do it differently with regard to how the how the how the the crime was was would would you have wanted more involvement in the judicial process personally so that you wouldn't feel um, as unsettled or or what I think so I mean as difficult as it would be either in the past or in the future if I do decide to get more information but as difficult as it would be to know some of the details mm-hmm. sometimes the not not knowing details is is worse Right, um, because it's it's open for well, did he do this? Did he say that? How did it? You know, I I don't know. So it's all these what ifs. Um, and and there are times that I wish I had been a little more, um, a little more pushy, I guess, with with saying, look, I want I want to know details. I mean, when when they found when they found him, I found out through someone else. We, he had been missing for three weeks, and I was preparing to go to a, a press conference, and I was down in the cafeteria getting breakfast, and a friend saw me. And I remember this person saying, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. And I said, sorry for what? And she runs out crying, and I call public safety, and they said, oh, we found a body. That's how I found out. That, and I, uh, I do wish I had been a little more, had a, 
maybe stood up more and said, look, I want to know, but I didn't, I didn't know what was going on. I didn't realize what could and couldn't happen. Right. So it's, yeah. The way we're notified sometimes, I mean, we, we read about ours in the newspaper and had to call the police. So, you know, there are so many horrific ways that, that this happens and should never happen. And in hindsight, yes, you, you kind of wish you would have, um, been a, a different kind of person, but you're totally unprepared for that. But I still think that the future is your opportunity. And when you when you get your wherewithal together, and you have, you know, you make the time to do that. I know that you're going to do that. And I I just feel like you you there are great things to come in the future for you because. Um, it, it sounds like you're embarking on a, a really good career, and yet you're still staying in touch with these people that were so important to Max. And, um, you know, it is it is a really uh, wonder, wonderful thing. I mean, do you feel as if, by the way, do you feel as if 30 years was justice in, in, in your way of thinking? I, I don't know. I mean, you, you know, you see all these other horrible stories every single day in the news, and my heart mm-hmm. always goes out to these people because I remember that first day of finding out he had been murdered. And I think, oh, this, this, this mother, this father, this friend, this classmate, they're just starting the journey that I've been on and I will always be on. So, I, I mean, I, I don't know. I've, there are days, there are bad days, maybe in the beginning where I – I'd even thought of I want to I want to drive up to that prison and take care of him myself, and I mm-hmm. think any homicide survivor has thought that. But then I think sure. that wouldn't make me any that would make me just as bad as he is. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So I don't think there's ever there's no justice other than go back in time and don't don't do it. <laughs> I mean, this shouldn't have happened to me. It shouldn't have happened to you and and thousands, hundreds of thousands of other people. Absolutely. And from what I, I mean, I, I didn't get a chance to read all the articles, but I didn't see anywhere where this person expressed any kind of remorse. Um, no, I haven't, I haven't quite so. seen it as true remorse. No. But and they often, they often do not. And that's what, you know, and that's what crime victims, you know, look forward to say, at least there's some acknowledgement that, you know, but it just it just doesn't happen. These people have no soul. They have n- they have nothing. They're vacuous. You know, and and that's the hard part. But you know, I commend you for coming coming on our show for um, you know talking about this difficult personal topic. And you know, hopefully, maybe this will also um, bring you to the next step um, emotionally, whatever you you feel like you need to do. And I will be there to be your friend if you need me. Um, and Thank you, Donna. Will, You've been amazing. Thank you. You're welcome. And we will we'll have this show and we continue to feature, feature people like you um, to tell our in, inspiring stories. Um, if people want to get in touch with um, the legacy of Max and get a, a good a good taste of what it was that you did with the telethon. Do you have a particular year that you really like and that you would refer people to um, if they want to go in and, and, and take advantage of seeing some of the telethon? Yeah, I'd have to take a look and see if the site is, is the site is owned by the, the students. So I'd, I'd have to track down um, 
where some of that information is. It's actually, that might be my next task going through and getting copies of all the shows and pulling them together into some online repositories. So that, that's the next stage of this lifelong grief process that okay. I've been doing. Yes. That, that sounds like, that sounds like a good plan. And if there's uh, some further updates in the future or something else that you would like to do, you're, you're always welcome to come back on Shattered Lunch Radio. You know, I just wanted to extend that to you. Um, Delilah, I love that. Thank you. Great. Delilah, do you have some parting thoughts before we say goodbye to Laura on this podcast? Well, just as you said, I, I really commend you for the journey that you've taken. Um, you know, unfortunately, your answers won't always be there, and they always won't be the ones that you want to hear. Um, but I think you've done some amazing work so far, and I think you will probably continue to do more amazing work in, in Max's name. So thank you um, for taking this cause on and for being who you are. Yeah. Yes, well, thank you so much for giving me this opportunity, and I'm, I'm glad to share my story. Well, thank you, Laura. We're we're very proud of you, and we're proud to have you as a guest. So with that, we're going to close out this edition. And just to let people know very quickly, we're going to be having a special edition of Shatter Lives Radio this Monday evening starting at 7 p.m. Central. And be sure to look on our social media because we will have details. Okay? Thanks so much, everyone, and have a wonderful and safe weekend wherever you may be. Thanks again, Laura. Talk to you soon. Thank you.